Welcome to our Holden Village podcast. For over 50 years now, Holden Village has traveled a rich history of faith that has transformed a copper mining town into a vibrant place of education, programming, and worship. Holden has sought to welcome all who seek contemplation and community in the remote wilderness of the beautiful Cascade Mountains. We continue to invite people of all ages to come alongside our rhythms, which inspire and equip travelers for a sustainable life of faith outside the village. And we continue to listen and reflect on our story and history and seek to discover our place in God's creative mission in our world. Our podcasts are a way of sharing our conversations with our teaching faculty around reformation, the reforming of our relationships with the earth with each other, and with a divine. Let's tune in and join the conversation. My name is Carl Hughes. I'm a theology professor at Texas Lutheran University in Seguin, Texas. Um, I teach historical and constructive theology there. Um, I'm the author of Kierkegaard and the Staging of Desire, which is a book on the theme of spiritual eros in Kierkegaard's writings and how he uses art and aesthetics and especially theater to elicit that sort of spiritual desire for God, um, which is frankly a theme that Lutherans have typically been very resistant to, um, but it's something that Kierkegaard, I think, develops in a Lutheran context, and there's a way in which that brings him in dialogue with mystical theologians in a way that I think is really powerful. Um, That's not what I'm talking about here this week during my time at Holden Village. Um, What I'm talking about this week is... um, title of my course is Reforming Biblical Reading, um, and I'm interested in thinking about both the, the gifts that Luther and the Reformation brought to Christian practices of biblical reading, and those are frankly things that Lutherans like to talk a lot about, um, things like reading the Bible in the vernacular, um, the, the idea that all Christians can read the Bible for themselves, um, the centrality of preaching in Lutheran tradition, um, but there are other things that, uh, there are other doors that Luther closed uh, in, his, in his teachings about the Bible, um, and I think those are doors that might be worth looking into again today. So one of the doors that Luther um, closes is the idea that the Bible really bears an almost infinite multiplicity of meanings, right, that it can mean so many different things to different people in different contexts and have them all be good. Um, so just to give one example, Gregory the Great um, is a, a theologian from the 7th century who um, writes a great deal about the book of Job and other, other books. And one of the things he emphasizes is that the, the Bible is like a river. It's deep in some places and shallow in others. And he also says it grows with the person reading it. So it can mean one thing to you when you're five years old can mean another thing to you when you're 40 and another thing to you when you're 80. And all of those meanings are true. Um, And so for most readers prior to the Reformation, there are many levels of biblical meaning, many layers of biblical meaning, and frankly, the literal level or even the the level intended by the original author, sometimes the least consequential, right? Because as I say, the text grows with the person reading it. Um, So this week here at Holden Village, we're looking at a couple of um, ancient interpreters that are personal favorites of mine. Um, Those are Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine. Um, And um, Gregory of Nyssa is a particularly powerful one, I think. He's 
um, a mystical theologian and Trinitarian theologian as well. Um, But in his book, The Life of Moses, which is a kind of contemplative reading of the book of Exodus, he interprets the entire story of Moses' life as a story of the progression towards virtue. And one of the things he says right at the beginning is this journey towards virtue is limitless, right? The more, the more you progress towards virtue, the more you realize there's a greater summit to climb toward. Um, and so he, he says, because the progression towards virtue is limitless, the range of meanings that can be fi- found in the book of Exodus is limitless. Um, and he also says very clearly, there are going to be um, literal stories in the book of Exodus that don't really teach virtue. And his, his uh, understanding when, when you find one of those stories is that's a prompt or a goad to seek a deeper meaning. So, for example, um, anyone familiar with the stories in the book of Exodus remembers that um, part of God's deliverance of the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt is that God kills all the Egyptian firstborn, firstborn animals um, and firstborn human Egyptian babies and adults as well, apparently. Um, And this really troubles Gregory. He says, how could a just and good and loving God kill innocent children? I mean, maybe they're adult parents, maybe they deserve it if they're evil, Um, but is any child really worthy of being slaughtered by God? How would that be a moral conception of God? So he says, well, this is a a sign from God that you're not supposed to take it literally. You're supposed to find a deeper meaning. And in this case, the meaning he suggests is that um, those children are sort of like the the bad habits we need to get rid of if we're going to start progressing towards virtue. It's sort of like the way I explain this to students is um, it's sort of like uh, if you realize you have a problem with addiction, um, first thing you need to do is separate yourself from the drugs or the alcohol or whatever it is you're addicted to. Now, I don't know, maybe that's not a helpful way of reading the story today, but Gregory's point is you should look for things in the story that draw you closer to God and that help you live a moral life. He's less interested in saying what was the one true original meaning um, for all time. Um, Luther himself, on the other hand, he often does talk that way. And I think it's because he's seeking a source of certainty in the Bible. He's seeking a kind of um, bedrock foundation for theological truth. After all, he said the Pope doesn't give it to him. Church tradition doesn't give it to him. Reason certainly doesn't give it to him. So he says the Bible, the Bible alone is the source of my theological certainty. So he, um, he argues very forcefully against a notion of multiplicity of biblical meaning. Um, By this time, the medieval church had codified biblical meaning into uh, a fourfold sense, so pretty much every text could be interpreted in according to four different levels of meaning. And he says, no, it really just has one simple meaning. The Holy Spirit is a clear and simple writer. Um, And really anyone reading the Bible who knows the right languages, who has the right um, context to understand it, should arrive at the same interpretive conclusions that he does. This, of course, makes him very frustrated when um, other intelligent Christian readers do not read the same text in the same way he does. Um, But I do think that this kind of closing the door to um, the multiplicity of biblical meaning and the ways in which um, 
Texts can edify different people in different ways, and the um, prioritizing of the goal of spiritual edification and moral transformation over objective content is something of a loss for the Lutheran tradition. And I think it's worth, uh, at least those of us who kind of inherit this Lutheran legacy, I think it's worth um, trying to reclaim some of those more contemplative and edifying modes of scriptural reading. Another resource for doing that that um, we're looking at this week is um, St. Augustine's On Christian Teaching. Um, This is another very classic theological text, which is basically a handbook of biblical reading. Um, But what I really lift up in that text is um, what Augustine calls the rule of love or the rule of charity. And what he says very explicitly in this text is, you can read a text literally, you can appreciate exactly what the original human author meant, you can know the languages enough to have a very precise understanding of the literal meaning of the text, but if it doesn't make you more loving, if it doesn't help you love God more, and by the same token, love human beings in the world more, you're doing it wrong, right? And um, he says really any meaning that builds up this double love of God and neighbor is a meaning that's present in the text. Um, Or if it's not present in the text in a literal way, God is using the text to bring you towards this goal. And that goal is what's important, um, not the more intermediate step of understanding what the text originally meant. So those are some ancient resources, ancient resources that we're looking at this this week. Um, But we're also going to be looking at some um, much more contemporary resources. So the first of these, uh, James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree, this is an incredibly powerful uh, book that was published within the last uh, six or seven years. Um, I think it's especially poignant right now because uh, James Cone recently passed away just a few weeks ago. Um, And Cone has been such a force in uh, American Christianity and American theology Uh, He's known as the founder of black theology, and I mean, all of his books are incredibly powerful, but for me, what has become his final book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, is certainly the one that has affected me the most and I find to be the most powerful. Um, I would also say that I really think it's important for Lutherans specifically to engage engage with Cohn's thought. Um, Just a statistical fact is that Lutherans in America are the whitest religious group in the United States. Um, and in fact, we have the dubious honor of holding the top two spots in the sense that the ELCA is the number one whitest major religious group in the United States, and number two is the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. So I think that, I mean, there are certainly geographical factors, historical factors that help account for some of that. But I do think that if we claim to be a community that is focused on confronting oppression, on uh, working for justice, and we don't take the uh, racial homogeneity of our uh, own community as something of a sign and a challenge, um, then I think we're really missing a fundamental point of our own, our own theology. In any event, the reason I think Cohn is especially relevant in this context is that he, you could say he, in The Cross and the Lynching Tree, uses some of the patterns of allegorical interpretation without sort of explicitly um, connecting his way of reading the Bible to that. I don't even know if he was thinking about ancient and medieval um, Christian interpretation of the Bible when he wrote it, 
but he makes a really powerful case as he says that if you can't see um, black lynching victims, and let's be honest, there were um, about 5,000 of them in the late 19th century and throughout the first half of the 20th century in America, um, publicly executed by white people as sort of spectacles of white supremacy, often to very large and appreciative white crowds um, that sort of made this visual symbol through torture and execution of white supremacy in America. If we can't connect that to the crucifixion of Jesus, another symbol or spectacle of oppressive power, in that case, um, the power of the Roman Empire, which definitely did not tolerate people who challenged it, then we're really missing the point of the cross. Um, so there's a sense in which Cone is um, multiplying biblical meaning in the same way that the ancient and medieval allegorists did. He's saying in the same way that they um, found so many different layers of meaning, so many different um, symbols and metaphors in the Bible that could be interpreted in new and different ways, sometimes well beyond what the original authors would ever have intended. Cohn is doing something sim similar by saying that um, all of these American lynching victims, which are memorialized in some really, really powerful art, paintings, poetry by African-American artists and poets of the um, early to mid-20th century, those painters and poets are teaching us to see these um, African-American victims of white supremacy as sort of Christological types, as reflections or images of Christ. And, you know, Luther himself says um, the fundamental uh, revelation of Christianity is to see God revealed in suffering, in this crucified, weak, um, oppressed victim. And I think, for me, what is powerful about Cohn's book is he says that sort of revelation multiplies in our world, and our job is to open our eyes to it. So I would really recommend to anyone this book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cohn. Um, it's, it's certainly a brilliant book, but it's also a book that is accessible, I think, to people without formal training in theology. Um, the second uh, contemporary resource that I um, am uh, sharing with the community this week is this beautiful, beautiful concert-length choral work by Craig Hella Johnson, um, which he composed for his own choral group, Conspirare, um, a beautiful name for a choir, which means uh, to breathe together. Um, and that choir and Johnson himself are based in Austin, Texas, not too far from where I live. And um, I've had the, the blessing of being able to um, hear many of their concerts and to um, really get to know this piece of choral music as well. Um, and what is powerful about this piece of music is that um, Johnson encourages us to contemplate uh, the death of Matthew Shepard, again by a hate crime, by um, people who were extraordinarily homophobic and violent, as a kind of Christological image. Now, he doesn't push that too much. He, he really emphasizes the ordinariness of this this boy, this young man. Um, but he also, kind of like Cone, 
suggests that we need to be able to connect these tragedies, that we need to see um, these uh, spectacles of injustice as recalling the cross, and frankly then as places where God already is. And if we want to know something about God, it's a very Lutheran point to say, um, don't necessarily look up to heaven, uh, look up to the bright lights of glory, but you see it in these tragedies of suffering where God is already present. Um, so um, in this beautiful uh, work considering Matthew Shepard, um, Johnson, uh, in some ways, he, he very much recalls the, the passions of J.S. Bach, like the uh, St. Matthew Passion, the St. Uh, John Passion. Um, and uh, probably the, the most obvious place where he does this is when there's a, there's a piece in the middle of this work where it's about the funeral for Matthew Shepard, and there are protesters there, extremely homophobic protesters from the Westboro Baptist Church, um, who in this piece of music are shouting Kreuzige, Kreuzige, which in German is crucify, crucify. Um, and that's basically a direct citation from uh, the Bach Passions. Um, so again, uh, these works of art are calling Christians to sort of expand their sense of biblical meaning, to see the Bible not just on the page, but in the world around them, and by extension, to see God revealed there too. Thanks for joining us for another Holden Village podcast. Be sure to view the links in the description for more information or visit our website to find out more about the village. We hope you will make a pilgrimage to Holden. Blessings and peace to you.